as a group, we came together just to share that expertise. And one of the one of the greatest things, like greatest joys, is jumping on a pitch with a founder and bringing someone who really knows that space and watching the entrepreneur's eyes sort of light up. It's like, oh my God, this person knows my space. And, and watching that dynamic go back and forth and you learn so much from it. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, Director of Marketing here at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have David Chang, who's an entrepreneur and angel investor in more than 80 companies. And in this episode, we talk about a wide variety of topics, including how he got started angel investing, what he looks for from the investments he makes, why he co-founded TBD Angels and how that organization runs, how he structures his own angel investing portfolio, choosing the budget for each investment, his thoughts around teaching entrepreneurship and what makes Babson unique in this regard, and much, much more. Without further ado, here is David Chang, entrepreneur and angel investor. David, welcome to the show. So glad to be here or be remotely here. <laughs> yes, what a world we live in now with the virtual environment, which allows us to talk to people all over the world, which is insane. I love it. One thing I want to start with, though, with your experience with both the entrepreneurship side as well as the investing side, you, you were quoted somewhere saying, like, you either go super deep with building a company or super wide with investing in companies. For you, making that switch into investing, how did the decision go for you? Yeah, it was a little bit maybe similar to my journey as an entrepreneur, somewhat accidental. Like my very, very first angel investment was over coffee when I was interviewing for a job and it wasn't a great fit in terms of me joining the company at the time, but it was sound like a great business. So you know what? One of my angel invest and said. With that investment, what was it around getting that first one under your belt? Because we've talked to a lot of people in our Vitalize Angels community and they're like 150 maybe or 200 people are first time investors haven't done a deal yet. What got you to do that and then be comfortable with investing more uh, into companies as well? Yeah, it, you know, it's funny. It wasn't a super conscious thing. And I knew a handful of other friends and colleagues that had done some angel investing, but this was back in probably 2006, 2006, 2007. So it was a, it was a while ago. And at that time, that particular startup was one where, given the particular risk, uh, risk profile, it just wasn't a fit for me. But when the entrepreneur talked about the business and I found out a little bit more about what he was building and some of the other folks that he had at the table, including one of my former CEOs that was then angel investing in the company, when that opportunity came up and it was a relatively small check, I'm like, you know what? One of the most rigorous analytical people is putting some money in this. I'm like, you know what? That's probably a pretty good sign for me to dig in as well. Yeah, I love that. And as it's progressed, so you've invested in like 80 something companies, a lot of companies, let's just say over the last you know decade or so. In that time, we had a question on Twitter. Someone's asking about, you know, how do you choose your budget for that or a max budget or a number of companies? Tell me about your portfolio construction for you as an angel. Like how has that evolved? What does it look like today? Yeah. And, and I guess I'll also answer uh, on behalf of a handful of other angels that I work with that over time, there are clearly times where you are more liquid and times you're less liquid. And so when you're right after an exit is a perfect time because you've got a lot of time, you've got some budget and you're going to put in a bunch of money. And when you see something really interesting, then you're willing to lean in. You've got the ability to lean in. And, and for me, when I think about the budget, I definitely look at it from a top down perspective that if you've got a hundred dollars of wealth like where do you allocate that like how much of it to a particular category and so i do set like a maximum budget around how much goes into angel investing as just like an asset class and then i try to manage that up and down based on the particular time 
you know, whether I'm in a place where I'm in between roles or if I'm deep in something, it's really difficult to spend time angel investing. And so it's that balance between time and budget that really is the, 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 the driving factor. Okay. Well, one thing I'm curious about with that, how does that change when you see companies you love? You're like, oh, this is going to put me over. I really want to get into this company. And I'm sure you're getting pitched or you see companies a lot, especially with your involvement in entrepreneurship programs. How does that go? Do you stay, do you stick to it? Do you, are you lost some flexibility? I'm curious for you, David, how's that go? Yeah, on on my side, it is super tempting to go beyond budget, which I probably have broken my budget a handful of times. But I I do think you know if you if you got this big pie of like where you want to allocate your funds, fine. Maybe at some point you're a little over indexed on the angel side, and then you're going to under index on maybe public company side. But um, there there yeah for sure there is that temptation that when you see something really good, um, and maybe as a little bit of an anecdote, and this is. This is a total aside. It's actually a little embarrassing, so I might as well just go ahead and say it. That well, one of the best angel investments I made was in a company called Crashlytics, and the timing could not have been worse from my standpoint. Where we were in the middle of buying a place, and the net of it was I barely had enough like liquidity to finish all of the payment to the place and the down payment and all that other stuff. And this was the same week that that was closing. And so I had to peel back a little bit on the angel investment. Had I not done that, I wouldn't have gotten the you know, 20, 30 X return on that particular investment. But uh, what was embarrassing was that because I was shy of the actual down payment, I had to borrow money from my mother to make sure that we had the down payment. So there you go. You got someone who's a, a super sophisticated entrepreneur and angel investor can't manage their own money and had to borrow from his parents. Well, I just think that's, that's such an interesting story because there's so many opportunities and when you see it, you do have to go for it. And I'm always reminded of like the the time uh, Chris Zaka talks about his investment early on in like Twitter and like the investment was like 25K was one of his first investments or something like that. And he was like, it's such a big amount for him at the time, but it was looked at as like so small from other people. Maybe we're like, oh, just 25K, whatever. But like, I think he took out a loan or something to do that or went to credit card debt to do that. And it's like, if you see these opportunities, not advising people to do this, but sometimes it's like, you have to take the chance. And that's more of a, I wonder, a confidence and trusting in the people you're investing in and also you know, working very hard to make sure it does work out in his case. But it, it happens all the time. We hear that. I think talking to Gail too at Vitalize and she's she also you know, opportunistic on certain investments where maybe she'll go more than the average person would in terms of percentage of investing uh, into this asset class. But it's also one of those things where if you like the person, team you're working with and everything too, it's a little bit different. And I'm curious for you as well, in terms of your portfolio, now you have TBD Angels, which I want to talk about. And you also like, you know, direct investing as well. What does that look like today for you in terms of direct investing in the companies, using the angel group? Like, how does that go for you? Yeah. Over time, I had done a handful of direct investments. And what I found was that time was the toughest thing to balance, right? Like just didn't have enough time to kick tires on investments, didn't have enough time to to listen to pitches. And so we ended up creating this group, TBD Angels, just the beginning of the pandemic, primarily because a handful of us were operators. And we, we also recognized that each of us had expertise that the others didn't. And so if you fast forward to today, the group is north of 200 angels. The thesis around was that we were active, current, uh, operators and experts in functional had expertise that others didn't. And so as a group, we came together just to share that expertise. And I have found that over time, because of this group, I am much more likely to write checks and I'm much more likely to rely on the expertise of others, specifically in fields that I don't know particularly well. And so one of the one of the greatest things, like greatest joys is jumping on a pitch with a founder and bringing someone who really knows that space and watching the entrepreneur's eyes sort of light up. It's like, oh my God, this person knows my space. 
and watching that dynamic go back and forth and you learn so much from it. And so these days, most of my investments are actually through the group as opposed to direct to directly. With that group too. So you launched it in a pandemic. What did you imagine this was going to be? What it would turn into? The structure of, you know, do we have pitches once a month? Do we have them opportunistically? Like we've thought about a lot of those details with Paralyzed Angels. So selfishly, I just want to know how you thought of structuring that, running that. I'm really curious. Yeah, it was maybe along the themes of me being an accidental entrepreneur joining my first startup and then the accidental angel investor making that first investment. This was a little bit of a, uh, it was really just kind of an experiment, like a handful of us, like six of us got together over lunch one day to kick tires on an investment. And it was basically pizza lunch. And we're like, well, that was fun. Why don't we do that again? And for the first six months or so, the group itself was kind of no more than Slack, a couple of Google Docs, you know, a couple Google folders, and that was essentially it. We we ended up creating an entity behind it because it essentially gained decent momentum afterwards. But the the group itself, when when we got together, it was trying to solve the problem of most of the other angel groups that we were part of felt like the folks that were listening to pitches weren't super connected to the industries that they were looking at. And as a result, we, we saw that that sort of dynamic was one where it was really tough for founders to find like-minded folks, get a ton of value. The process itself is super long. And so when we ended up creating this group, a few things were different. So one, as a differentiator, we wanted to make sure that the process was faster than the typical batch process. And so instead of grouping up pitches along the monthly cycle or quarterly cycle or you know, however most of the groups do that, we do it in real time. And as a result, we've had to build some tools to process that stuff in real time. So think of it almost as like a just-in-time manufacturing system, where when pitches come in, we sort of scramble and put this through a process where we evaluate deals on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. And as you know, this industry, that can be crazy, right? And so we've had to build a bunch of like guardrails and process around that whole thing. Um, but where we are today is that the, the key differentiators as a group is that we think our people are much more active, highly relevant, they're connected. And, uh, and then on the process side, we try to front load some of those risks and have built some of these just-in-time, real-time tools to be able to look at deals, due diligence and quickly, and then get answers to entrepreneurs more quickly than, than we would have through a batch process. Yeah, we have to double click on that. I can't let that go, David. So what are some of those tools or guardrails uh, around that? Because there's a lot of angel groups out there as well, some great ones. And uh, I'm curious about how do you how you run that with those tools? Well, I mean, this whole thing's an experiment, right? Like we have to see whether or not this will actually work out. The, the one other notable thing about the group is that because it really is a um, member run organization, there's very little hierarchy. And so pretty much people just step up and volunteer for different roles. Like I'm a tech software person. So I do some of the stuff in the back end, right? Others love the deal flow process. They volunteer to do that. And, and so one of the, I guess one example of a way that we're trying to front load some of those unknowns is even before a pitch even before we schedule a pitch, we make sure that there's at least 15 people that are willing to hear the pitch. And so think of it almost as a, is this of interest? And so it has very little to do with the entrepreneur, has very little to do with the, the pitch itself. It was more about, are we able to even get an audience? And so from many of the cases, sure, they can get that audience. It's really interesting for one reason or another, but this really saves the entrepreneur's time. And so that's just one kind of way that we front-loaded stuff. And then what that enables to do is to make sure that those that make it through the process, we're devoting a ton of time and effort to figuring out whether or not those are good fits. And we built some tools around scheduling, we built some, you know, some calendar type tools. And so there's a few things that we're doing on that front. I love that. That's awesome. There, there's, when you run an angel group, you understand 
the decision making around that and how you should go. Should you go monthly? Should you go as deals are coming in? And you know, we're always thinking about that. And to your point, it's very much so an experiment, which I love that you, you said that because we're we're always testing things too with us and trying to figure out like, should we do more of this? Should we do less of this? What do members want? You know, do they want to see more. Like just so many details you can you can figure out. It's very much so like running a company or a startup. Yeah, we, we break stuff all the time, right? And that's one thing I tell prospective members, right? That the um, like one of the tools that we could develop. Uh, I don't know if you know Jason Burke. I think you may have spoken to him in the past, but Jason's one of the founding members, and he essentially has built this entire portal, right? Because instead of grabbing little bits of data from Slack and from Google and from you know Airtable, you need to a really tight way of looking at all that. And so that's just a tool that he created on behalf of the group. And that's something that doesn't exist. And that helps us understand, like get this view of the entire pipeline. And that's something that didn't exist before. Yeah. And so when you went able that, let us know. We'll chat. We'll chat. <laughs> so one of the things I want to dive into though is just with your investments in yourself. So with you as an angel investor, what are you looking for as an investor? Everyone has their own kind of thoughts around this. I'm curious what, what David thinks about what are you looking for? Yeah, you know, I guess having, it's a little bit of a luxury, right? Like when you invest professionally, you have to have a thesis, right? Because you're managing other people's money. And as an angel, for the most part, most of the investments that I've made have essentially been in entrepreneurs and spaces that I can help out or generally know. And so it's less that I have a bet on a particular thesis or an idea. It's like, oh my God, the, you know, for example, future work, future work is a very big thing. If something comes across my uh, the table that isn't in that category, I can still look at it, right? And so for for me, I've historically really looked at uh, spaces where I'm able to add some sort of value. Either I know the space, or the founder has some gap in a uh, in a place where I've got some strengths, right? And so if I'm a product marketing guy, and then the founder she's all about like the business side, and or she's super technical, then that's a good match, right? And then in other cases where I've got a founder that has some expertise that I have, then, you know, I'm probably less valuable. And so I've over time have just invested in, in fields that are just ones that kind of come across the table, ones that seem kind of particularly interesting. And so in, in many ways, I don't have like a strong thesis around that. Um, probably the, the main thing that I'm seeing now is that I'm spending more time with entrepreneurs that are earlier in their careers. And while obviously it will happily take a look at something from a multiple time founder, I'm seeing a lot of pitches these days from student entrepreneurs, from uh, women, from people of color. Uh, and so I'm seeing like a ton more and I've purposely widened the aperture on that front. And so it's been great to just look at founders that, uh, that others may not be spending a ton of time looking at. Yeah, no, I love that. And I had to read a question from Twitter because I think it's really interesting. How do VCs fight subconscious bias when reviewing a pitch from a less privileged founder who isn't as sophisticated and or may be more desperate for a positive outcome from the meeting? I'd love to hear your thoughts around that. Yeah. I, so I've definitely seen some that purposely widened the pipeline, right? And so they're just like, you know what? I looked at my own calendar. I'm only seeing two out of 10, right? And so, you know, insert any sort of diversity metric there. And so they'll purposely say, all right, you know what? I'm going to bring that back into better balance. And so instead of doing two out of 10, I'm going to do five out of 10, right? And so I've seen a lot of folks just with the, with just time management, just open things up and and it changes just w what you see and who you see. And so that's one way that I've seen people do it. There are, you know, for sure other ways that VCs can balance that. The the other thing that I've noticed in terms of that either it's conscious or subconscious bias is that because social proof is such an important thing that you need to figure out like if there are cases where there's very little social proof, 
you need to do a lot of the work up front. And, you know, frankly, some investors, super busy, maybe they're not going to put in the work. And then some others that feel very strongly about this realize that by spending a little bit more time and effort, I'm going to potentially discover a fantastic investment, but it's going to require more of my time and effort to do so. And so it's not that they're changing the criteria. They're not changing their thesis. They're not changing their outcomes. Uh, or not, they're not changing their target outcomes by lowering the bar, right? They're just spending more time to, sp- to see whether or not that particular founder or that particular business is, is a quality one. And so, you know, I applaud those that are spending more time to do so. Yeah, we're actually, even at Vitalize, thinking about how we're hiring more like, like deal associates to take more of those kind of first calls and get into, filter down the hundreds of companies we see every month to at least do more first calls with almost everyone, not everyone, but like people who are fit at least our thesis. And then doing as many more deal calls as we can to, to that exact point. So not have that like, oh, we can't we can't do this call. We're going to shift that away because we don't have the capacity. We're expanding our capacity to be able to do that. And one of the things too, like being in this angel group and you know talking to all the different founders and everything as well, is like now thinking through, even as these early investors and as myself, as an like early investor starting to invest because of our angel group, it's like, is this company potentially great, team potentially great, but they had a bad pitch or they maybe you can tell they just weren't practiced in the way to pitch. And if I overlooked that, was there other things they could do, they could learn, they could advance, you know, tighten up their pitch. They actually are really good at sales. They happen to have a bad pitch. Like sometimes like they have an off day or they're not, they just don't understand that, but they can build a great company. So it's like trying to keep that in mind as well as you're selecting people to your point, like finding people that are these diamonds in the rough potentially that just haven't had that experience or that practice to them. If they, if they did, they would crush it. Always try to keep that in mind too, which is hard. <laughs> Yeah. I, so I've definitely seen some that purposely widened the pipeline, right? And so they're just like, you know what? I looked at my own calendar. I'm only seeing two out of 10, right? And so, you know, insert uh, any sort of diversity metric there. And so they'll purposely say, all right, you know what? I'm going to bring that back into better balance. And so instead of doing two out of 10, I'm going to do five out of 10, right? And so I've seen a lot of folks just with the with just time management, just open things up and and it changes just w- what you see and who you see. And so that's one way that I've seen people do it. There are, you know, for sure other ways that VCs can balance that. The the other thing that I've noticed in terms of that either it's conscious or subconscious bias is that because social proof is such an important thing that you need to figure out like if there are cases where there's very little social proof, you need to do a lot of the work up front. And, you know, frankly, some investors super busy, maybe they're not going to put in the work. And then some others that feel very strongly about this realize that by spending a little bit more time and effort, I'm going to potentially discover a fantastic investment, but it's going to require more of my time and effort to do so. And so it's not that they're changing the criteria. They're not changing their thesis. They're not changing their outcomes uh, or not changing their target outcomes by lowering the bar, right? They're just spending more time to sp- to see whether or not that particular founder or that particular business is, is a quality one. And so, you know, I applaud those that are spending more time to do so. It is. I was just talking to my friend who he's a founder at a series B company. And he was saying like, I haven't really done a pitch in like three or four years. He just has conversations and they lead to you know, talking to more VCs and like over time rounds come together, like, but he's never like a pitch per se. So he's like, I don't think I could even pitch if I had to. And like, he's in our group too now and like starting to see these pitches from founders at these early stages. And it's like, I don't know if I could pitch. And it's, it's such a weird dynamic and kind of tying that into what I want to talk about next is with teaching entrepreneurship and these different aspects of, you know, building companies and even raising funding, Babson has always been known as like one of the best schools in terms of entrepreneurship. What makes Babson unique in terms of teaching entrepreneurship and how do universities 
accelerators, programs, whatever. How should they go about teaching entrepreneurs? Yeah. And, and the pitch is such a strange thing, right? Like it's like your ability to articulate an idea that's on a bunch of slides to someone that's on you know the other side of a flat screen is, I don't know if that's super tied into if you're building a tech company, like for sure, like the ability to sell, the ability to communicate, you know, the, those are all proxies, but for sure you could have, and I've worked with founders that aren't particularly strong at pitching, but they're great at running companies, right? And so, you know, what do you do in those cases? Like you try to figure out like, and, and then I guess on the flip side, you've got some people that are fabulous presenters, but aren't really good at running a company. And so like, how do you, how do you sort that out? And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a strange sort of world. Yeah. And no, I'm glad you, you bring that up. And I, I looked at that a lot to your point of self-selecting, even for an MBA, I was like, what are schools that are in areas, locations and have the history where entrepreneurship is a part of that, or you'll be in the environment where entrepreneurship is part of that and does kind of self-select in many ways as well, like you're saying with that, where you get those types of people. And with that too, and with you being an investor and then seeing like all these early stage companies and student entrepreneurs, how do you look at that in terms of sourcing deals and people sourcing deals from whether it be you know, student-led accelerators, student accelerators, entrepreneurship programs at universities? Same as with that as an investor hat, looking at deals that are potential from universities. How do you view that? Yeah, I mean, th this probably isn't earth shattering, right? That, um, but I'll, I'll just kind of share at least what my perspective is on on that and what I've viewed as what's common with a lot of the founders that I meet through Babson is really the doing first as opposed to trying to overanalyze and think. Um, there's this entrepreneurial thought and action sort of uh, motto that the school has, and I guess I can say this because I'm I'm really kind of a part time employee of the the, the school, so I didn't I didn't go there. I'm not an alum, so I don't have like a um, an undue uh, you association with the school. And so it's really been almost like as an outsider and seeing that where just the number of iterations that someone will put in, the ability for that founder to figure out, okay, there's an obstacle. How do I get around that obstacle? How do I keep plugging away at it? I think in many ways, in contrast to me that I you know, I do consider myself an accidental entrepreneur because when I went to business school, I was thinking about my path was essentially going back to a big company, a big financial services company and ended up on this startup path almost really by accident that many of the people that I meet through Babson, they've wanted to start businesses even before they've gotten to the school, right? And so it seems, it seems crazy to me, right? Like uh, people who are in high school who are thinking about this, that chose the school for that. And, and so what I do see, it's a mix of both the school itself, the pedagogy, um, and and also just the people that that school attracts, right? And so it definitely is a self-reinforcing cycle where I do know a ton of founders from other schools, and there's nothing wrong with being um, being that accidental entrepreneur, right? Founders from other schools where they were perhaps thinking about a career in banking or a bigger company or you know something else, and while at school they were exposed to a new idea and something with a bunch of other students where they're like, hey, you know what, there might be something here. And the debate that they have is, is this enough of a thing for me to do that full time? Or should I pursue this other path? And so it's just a really different kind of mindset. And it's a gross generalization, but I definitely see that distinction with some other some other schools that I ended up working with. Yeah. And I imagine like having those relationships, building those with the universities and the schools and the programs, to your point, and they always know, like, even like for us, we kind of think about that as well with like our connections just in terms of our alum. And so like I'm at USC, Gail was at Booth, we have Notre Dame connections, like having those relationships with the universities themselves, then those students are kind of brought to you and they know about you already. And that is a way to source, especially when there's so many different ways going about finding deals and people are always trying to find the next one, uh, especially from areas that are not 
that are as they're more overlooked because there's more opportunity, kind of like asymmetrical opportunity upside. And so it is always interesting to see where people source from and how they go about it. And especially as angels, to your point, a lot of angel investors are full-time operators. So it's like, how do you build that sourcing side of it if you're doing direct investments and not necessarily an angel group? Where do you look? And it's so much universities are one, but I don't know how else you view that as well. Yeah, the, the sourcing process is definitely one that is is a little broken, right? Like it's very difficult to to spend enough time to just you know beat the bushes, right? Trying to find everything, and and part of the reason why I guess I'm not a full time investor is that that part of the role is is super grueling, right? Like if you're if you're at a firm that's big enough, you have folks that are focused on that, and you know hopefully you find people who love that part of it, which is like oh I'm gonna get out there and 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 spend all that time and at least the student entrepreneurship scene is a little bit more predictable in the sense that they tend to gravitate towards specific areas, right? So maybe there's an entrepreneurship center, maybe there's a student club, you know, whatever those things are, you're basically using the schools themselves as the channels to attract folks. And I generally think there's an opportunity to get like-minded students from different universities together, right? Because they're all sort of in their own silos, but that's sort of another topic altogether. And so the sourcing process, I think, is one where with general investments, you know, they can be from anywhere. But when you talk about people within like the higher ed ecosystem, they're just much easier to find and you end up seeing the same people again and again. And so there's some, I guess there's some scale to that and there's some synergy to that. So it's not as hard as in other places, but I think that's another place where you could, there's definitely things that you could do a little bit better to, to make that sourcing process more efficient. Yeah. And it's something to be said for habits, relationships and connections with people who are your peers, who are under, who are above. And I've always heard, heard that side of things too. And in the investing game, same thing. Also looking at, if you're an angel investor, potentially different industries, connecting people outside your industry in different spaces that you might be curious about and see what the opportunities are. It's something that we're kind of always like looking for and thinking of as well. And battle, or at least the challenge that many of us have that have been in the industry for a little while is that you're, you're naturally going to be the recipients of a bunch of inbounds, right? And so it could be cold inbounds through LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, it could be warm from other colleagues. It could be like a one degree away kind of thing where it's like, oh, you know, so-and-so said I should contact you. And, and so I think for most very active operators and active angels, given where the industry is now, like sourcing is less of a challenge, right? If anything, it's kind of like, how do you how do you fend off things that aren't a fit? And so, so that's one. And then for the folks that may not be as deeply tied in the ecosystem, but they have a ton to offer, which there's many people that are like that, then sourcing becomes a little bit of a challenge, right? Because it's like, if I'm not connected in the space, but I'm really interested in the space, who do I, how do I find those? And so I, I, I do think that if you can partner with people that, you know, whether it's an angel group or it's a, a collaborative, you know, what you guys are doing, uh, there's different ways to get more plugged into the flow. And then within, you know, six months to a year, you become part of that flow. And so you really get to see a lot of it. You get to see what's a fit, what's not a fit. Uh, and so I think sourcing becomes a different kind of issue. I think for, for those that are deep in the industry that have a ton of inbounds, I think the challenge is because those are typically, you know, that social filter is still there. You're going to get a ton of stuff from people you know, right? And that tends to magnify any networks that you're already, already in, uh, the whole homophily thing, right? And so you, you see the same stuff. And so how do you get outside of that? And you know, my way of doing so has been to try to partner with students that are 20, 30 years you know, younger than me, right? So there's just a different network altogether. And so just kind of casting a different net. And the other nice thing about schools from my perspective is because the schools themselves are much more reflective demographics wise of society as a whole, you'll just be picking from a much broader pool. Like the most recent Babson cohort over the summer 
we had 50% of the cohort was outside of the US, right? And so we had 50% people of color, which, and, and that was, you know, not typical in, in industry. And so that was because the school itself is an international school. You've got tons of people coming from lots of different places. And so it's been a great leveling factor. And so that's one of the reasons why I spend a lot more time in the student ecosystem these days. I know we're out of time here, David, but what's the best place for people to go find you, connect with you as well? Like- uh, best way is just davidchang.me. So www.david me. Perfect. David, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. So glad to be here. Thanks again. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.